This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Why should I trust you? You shouldn't. You shouldn't trust anyone. Certainly not the attorney general who just wants it all for himself. And not the young federal agent who wants your job. Not even the old man who just wants to hang on to what he created. Don't trust anyone. Just find the minority report. You said the minority report's destroyed. The record is destroyed. The original report still exists. I designed the system so that whenever a report occurred, it would be stored in a safe place but not declared. What safe place is that? The safest place, there is. Where is it? Inside the precog who predicted it. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works, but I'll tell you anyway. The premise is that Mike and I suggest movies to each other. We watch them separately. We talk about them on the podcast for the first time. This week, we're doing a Dan pick. This is a movie I had seen years ago. It popped up on Criterion again, and I hassled Mike into rewatching it. I watch it again, too, for the podcast. I think it's great. Today, we're going to do Minority Report, directed by Steven Spielberg, of course, starring Tom Cruise, came out in 2002. The screenplay by Scott Frank and John Cohen. Based upon a short story by Philip K. Dick, which we might talk about a little later, in part one, the other guy gets to go first. So, Mike, I foisted this upon you. I know this isn't the first time you've seen it, but you rewatched it for the pod. What's your overall take on the movie? I think that this is as successful as you can possibly be adapting Philip K. Dick's material. Of course, you know my thoughts about Blade Runner. I think we committed them to the pod where it's either the best worst movie or the worst best movie. I forgot what I said. You said that it's the you said the Gladiator is the best bad movie and that Blade Runner is the worst good movie. Whoever said that, I agree. And that's because I think Blade Runner takes itself way too seriously. There are silly elements that pop up. I think Spielberg what he did right is he leaned into a lot of the silliness and where there was ambiguity filled in his own. So this is very much an exploration of Tom Cruisean and Spielbergian moments, you know, like when he's wandering through the garden and the vines are wrapped around his legs there's a, there's a lot of silliness that's that's embellishment but what it gets right is the very tight plotting and contradiction that philip k dick loved because i'm not sure that he ever knew how to write a scene or how to write a character but he could write a concept he wrote premises great he, he wrote the best premises and that's even people who like him that's all that they can really say about him is well, man, you really didn't understand the story because it's really about what society will be in 50 years. Spielberg really leaned into that, but then continued to do what he does well, well, and then also made it a Mission Impossible movie at the same time, which is why Tom Cruise gets to do what he does well. There's that scene near the end uh, when uh, What's-His-Face is, is taunting Tom Cruise and says his dead kid's name. And he says, don't you ever say his name, which is like the most Tom Cruise moment outside of a Mission Impossible movie. So anyway, uh, I 
could sense a lot of things gone right, but but there is a sandwich-like structure that I have to say I think threw me off the first couple of times where the first 20 to 30 minutes are a really, really tight Mission Impossible movie. And then it goes into a Spielberg exploration and then it pops out a really tight Mission Impossible movie. And it's a it's a three-act structure, but it's not exactly the cleanest three-act structure. I will say it's incredibly entertaining to watch. So there's plenty of people that just watch movies and they're not bothered by structural problems at all. It doesn't, it never occurs to them. This is a great movie. And I, I, I want to say that this movie should be a little bit more famous than it is. I don't think that a lot of people are streaming minority report, or if there was a, if there was a blockbuster still around, there'd be like two copies of minority report and they both wouldn't have been checked out in a while. And I, I just want to say for the pod that I think that that's a shame. Yeah. I think we take Spielberg for granted. Like, like you said, these, this great Philip K. Dick idea, which I want to talk about in a second for my part one, but it also has a jetpack fight. And what, what would a Tom Cruise movie be without a gimmick like a jetpack fight? I'm not saying there's a jetpack fight in every one, but there's something like a jetpack fight in every one. Right. And that is totally Spielberg, like you said, leaning in. Or when Tom Cruise is, is jumping from vertical, vertically moving car to vertically moving car, all of a sudden, you know, it starts you thinking about the ethics of pre-crime and what's the catch going to be for the precogs. But also, we do have jetpacks. <laughs> and I, I think that this is why Steven Spielberg makes movies uh, and I don't, which is when I think about a 90 minute movie, right, I would if I had been in the writer's room, I would have said, well, these are two great scripts, but which one are we going to do? And Steven Spielberg says, yes. yes. And that's why he makes fun movies. Yeah. So my take on part one, watching it again, was that I want I want to I want to back up a little bit. So there's an economist. And I know you've heard of this guy. There's an economist named Thomas Sowell. You got to stay with me on this. And he has a book called The Conflict of Visions. And this book came out in 1987. And the book is, I read it when a long time ago, but I always remember this one thing from it. And, and I thought of it watching this movie. His question is, why do people, very, very smart people, end up on so different ends of the political spectrum, right? You can't just say, well, it's where you live or it's how your parents were. He's like, well, like, how do you explain that? And his answer is that it's because of visions and that basically these people have two different visions of the world, right? And he says, there's two, one's called constrained and one's called un unconstrained, right? So the constrained vision of the world is that like, you see people, you see the world as an inherently flawed place and that there really are no solutions to the big problems faced by humanity, like poverty, war, education or something. There's only trade-offs and you want to try to get the best trade-offs you can, right? So, you, you know, you can improve education by paying teachers triple what they make now, but the trade-off is that everyone's property taxes get even higher, right? Um, you can make you know airline travel even more safe by having even more security, but the trade-off is you have to run fewer flights and TSA is even harder than it is now, right? So there, that's the constrained one. The unconstrained vision of the world assumes that people are inherently good and that you can actually solve problems. They're not just you can have solutions to things and that all the problems that arise from from human nature can be eradicated if people would only fully commit to the solutions. And he says a lot of times that people who believe this find their solutions in big organizations like like governments and things like that. Right. This movie takes a problem crime, right? And it offers a solution. And I think what's cool is it looks at crime through the unconstrained vision. Like, here's our solution. And it's not like RoboCop or Cobra with Stallone, like talk crime as a disease, meet the cure, right? It has a goofy mechanism in place, right? These three pre-crogs, right? But the question it asks is real. 
if you could somehow have a thing like pre-crime, and this is why Philip K. Dick writes great premises, if you could somehow have a thing like pre-crime, like, would it work? And the answer is yes. But would you want that? Well, the answer might be like, yes, too. Like some people might say, no, it's terrible. It saps your free will. But if you tease it out, you can say, yeah, but we would eliminate murder. And that's what's interesting about it, right? The movie kind of had, it puts this premise out there and says, what do you think? It does something I think very much like is done in A Clockwork Orange. You know, the title of A Clockwork Orange is, of course, you become this this, this machine, right? So when we watch A Clockwork Orange, we're supposed to think that what happens to Malcolm McDowell, the Ludovico technique, is somehow stripping of him, him of his humanity. And that makes him a machine and that you're not really curing him. But there's also an argument to say, I don't care what they do to him because I've seen what he does in the movie. And I saw the rape scene when he sings Singing in the Rain. So go ahead, like take away his, his libido. I don't care. So what's cool about this is that the movie seems like it's it, the, the premise of the movie is that we found a solution without trade-offs. But of course there is because Max von Sydow is the trade-off because there's still a human being involved who wants to protect his reputation, which is how the whole plot begins. So I just think it's a cool it's a cool premise that makes you question both sides. For those of you who went to college after 2007 and never actually heard two guys argue at 2.30 in the morning about whether or not Philip K. Dick is a great writer, this is exactly what it sounds like if you just missed the first part and you just kind of wandered in because you're heading back to your dorm. By the way, Clockwork Orange is in my notes. Do you want to know my alternate title in case they ever remake this movie or I ever remake this movie? I do. Et in Arcadia, Red Ball. Explain that. Uh, There will always be... As the system tries to clamp down on murder, what they find is that spontaneous human passion is too much to be contained. Right. And so I think one of the beautiful things about this movie is it not only poses the question that you just asked about whether or not freedom, that kind of freedom is fundamental to humanity. It also, as we find out in A Clockwork Orange, does not work. It does not work permanently, right? The system can start to squeeze, but all the humanness starts to slip through its fingers and all you get ultimately is what we have which is the illusion of control yes and that's what's so cool about minority report is that for the first 30 minutes that tutorial you watch that youtube wiki how video on how we can prevent murders from happening you watch it and remember remember the premise of the movie remember the situation is that they're about to go national with pre-crime and it's worked where in our nation's capital we're about to go national so it seems like a solution it seems like it came right out of the unconstrained vision crime is a problem but we can solve it but of course they can't it is constrained because there's a human being and there's human ambition not to make the whole thing look bad that's what the that's what the title means right of course there is no minority report that's what the that's what it's about is that there's still human fingerprints on it so you're still going to have human fallibility in the solution at in arcadia red ball Welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or moments we think represent the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? The first person or one of the first people that Tom Cruise visits. I mean, I know his characters have names, but he's always Tom Cruise. So one of the first people that he visits when he's on the run is uh, one of the people who helped set up the program. And she's apparently some kind of gene researcher and all things kind of are weird at her house. The bushes kind of grab onto Tom Cruise as he tries to get into her house. And anyway... They're having a perfectly normal conversation. This is when he finds out about the concept of the minority report, which is that sometimes one of the precogs sees things differently than the other two precogs. 
but somehow that doesn't make it into the system, does it? Because it's not allowed to have contradictions in it. And despite that they're having a totally normal but weird conversation, right at the end, Tom Cruise asks where the minority report is if it's been deleted. And she grabs his head and pulls his ear towards her <laughs> and says, In the mind of the three cog, who envisioned it? And then that's the end of the scene for no reason. And it what struck me was, I mean, uh, aside from that's utterly weird and also the kind of thing that Steven Spielberg likes, why, what is with, what is with the kind of 10 to 15% exaggeration of weirdness that seems to hang over everybody in this movie? People have gotten really weird. And it seems to me that that kind of ties into our part one, because I think when you start to clamp down and change humanity, not only can you not repress the elements that you want, but you sometimes get unintended consequences. I think that their version of making this 50 years into the future by making everybody weird is is probably accurate, though not in the right way, probably just accurate to the degree which, in which they would become weird. But everybody's kooky in this movie. So the, the humans that you get resulting from that kind of system are not necessarily human in exactly the way that we would recognize human. So I think this is about intended consequences not working, but also unintended consequences working. And so they make the familiar strange and the strange familiar, which again, I think it's what that's what Steven Spielberg likes to do. And he has fun doing. Yeah. But that that moment made me think about why everybody in this movie is weird. Well, I would say the most normal person is Colin Farrell. He's the most like recognizable person. And of course, like Tom Cruise, like you said, Tom Cruise's name is John Anderton, but that's he's like always Tom Cruise. He's, he's Tom Cruise starring as Tom Cruise. It might Cruise. as well say name of perpetrator Tom Cruise on the Red Ball. Tom Cruise also, you know, he's he is, but he isn't. He's Tom Cruise, but also in the future, remember, he's he's a mess. And so we know he's gonna clean up by the end, which of course we find at the end. But remember, that's a big Philip K. Dick thing, is that like, you know, people's the drug use. Has has taken away part of humanity. We did a scanner darkly, which we love. We love that movie. That's it's a great, great movie. Great Philip K. Dick movie, right? But it's also about how the drugs you, you give up your essential humanity, which I guess is also true for drugs now. You don't have to be in the future for that. My moment, speaking about the future, is when he goes to get his eye transplant, <laughs> and he tells the doctor, "You know, I, I want to keep my original eyes." And the doctor says, "Why?" And Tom Cruise says, "Because my mother gave them to me." And that's a big laugh line, right? But there's all this stuff in the movie about, about the eyes and the windows to the soul. Like it's called your identity. And it's amazing about how that ties into, do you know who you are? Because Tom Cruise is told you're a different person. He's told he's a murderer. And he's like, no, I can't imagine that I'm that person. So it raises the question, to what extent do you know yourself? But also just on a fun movie level, it raises the issue of how much this movie got right by being put 50 years in the future. Remember, you know, personalized ads. How about when he's walking through the mall? Mr. Anderton, would you like a Guinness? Like, like it's amazing how much that that anticipated personalized ads on the internet. How about John, how about um, Tom Cruise working his smart TV when he puts on the special glove? Like, that's a thing now. You don't need the special glove to have a smart TV in your living room to swipe around. So it was just cool. It was like a funny thing. The jetpacks are something we still we still don't have yet. And that's still like a movie futuristic thing. But it's amazing how many little things it got right. It's because they knew that they were too fun. You know, the, <laughs> the stuff that helps the advertising companies 30 years early 
jetpacks will definitely be 20 years too late. How about the gimmick where, where he keeps his eyes so he can pass the retinal scan to awesome. get back into the temple to get the precogs? That's totally a mission impossible. You're you're surprised that Luther is not out somewhere in a jetpack space van helping him to get in. Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we talk about the title, the ending, the key takeaways. I think we've I think we've got the title. Dan, what do you make of the ending? Well, you know, Tom Cruise gets to get his mojo back. His life will go on. His wife is pregnant. I think that the way we didn't talk about this, but I think the way that Spielberg stage manages the whole deception of how am I going to kill this guy? I don't even know who this is. And having the fake photos on the, like in the hotel. That's That's a great scene. Yeah, isn't that like that is a that is a wonderfully stage managed scene where as a viewer, you love to be fooled that way. Right. So anybody that will watch it will, well, I kind of figured out that they were like, whatever, fine. Congratulations. You're the smartest guy in the room. But that's it's a great deception on the viewer. Yeah, I, I think that the triple the triple deception is fun. And I, I it struck me how much constructing that scene is like making a movie. Right. What Max von Sydow actually is doing is he's he's is he's making a movie. He played it for his audience. And then, you know, someone's someone's remaking the ending in in a way that that catches up to him. And of course, they play it for the audience and the audience has this enormous, you know, jump scare because they they see him put the mask on and they realize what he's done, that he's recreated exactly the scene that she would have seen. Right. And of course, he's more familiar, if you will, with the source material. That's why he's able to do it. Again, I, I think that this film's emergence in its last 20 minutes back into what it started off as, which is a, a Tom Cruise thriller, really, really, really works. You know, if, if you want the two minutes happy ending, they give you the two minutes happy ending. You know, you get Max von Sydow commit suicide. You get the awesome chase scene through the hotel, but which is not really a chase because Tom Cruise is waiting for you on your balcony and he knows that you're armed, but he's not. And he defeat he defeats you with he defeats you with a syllogistic logic, like either A will happen or B will happen, right? And I I especially like that the start of their confrontation takes place in the hotel kitchen. That's just it's the kind of the, it, it, or other words it takes place backstage, right? right. Because a, a banquet party is exactly the same kind of thing. It's something that is meant to be produced in a, in a slick, sophisticated, elegant manner, but the way in which it's produced is supremely inelegant. And I think that that's the kind of thing that Spielberg has in mind, right? And, and that's what you've been talking about, the inherent contradiction. We're going to give you a perfect society, but you can't see how the sausage is made. And I don't want to describe it to you, you know, literally. Uh, and so I enjoy those kinds of things. And I, I really like the way that the film wrapped up. I will say that I've seen this movie, I feel like, three times and every single time I'm going to forget in one day after we've recorded this podcast, what happens at the end of minority report. And if somebody asked me, I would need to watch a video to remember what happened because it's there's, I think there's such a thing as almost too tightly wound. And there's something about this, about the particular elements of why the murder works that don't, that don't really stick only the impressions stick, which again, I think is what people like about Philip K. Dick. That's Philip K. Dick, right? I made it's the premise. It's not the details. It's the kind of the, the idea halo around the work. And in that way, I think the movie is, is maybe truer to the source material than Blade Runner or even a scanner darkly. 
what you said about the movie reminds me that, you know, at the, it's like Max von Sydow is somebody who's directed a great movie and it's all done and, and, and has the rough cut. And then Tom Cruise is the producer or the guy at the studio comes in and says, you have to change the ending. He fixes like it, it in post. He fixes it in post. Exactly. Thanks for listening to our conversation about Minority Report and Philip K. Dick and Tom Cruise and all things connected therein. You can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM. You can follow us where else, Mike? Letterboxd. Give us requests. Let us know what to watch. And of course, if you have a request, we don't charge for them, Mike, do we? We do these freely. We don't. Actually, we got two organic ones in the last week. So so we'll be watching some interesting movies coming up. We'll be working on them. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next time.